Peter chapter 5, and uh, we're going to look at the last verses here. Uh, We're not going to look at them all. We're going to save some for next week, and then we'll be able to finish up uh, next week. But uh, tonight we want to talk about our conduct in face of danger. I read of a place down in Florida. Kind of sounds kind of nice right now, doesn't it? Uh, Except for the uh, storms that are coming. But this is 40 miles west of Orlando. Uh, It's the location of an exotic animal park named Savage Kingdom. I think it's... uh, uh, probably not operating, or if it is, uh, the owner, the man that uh, uh, ran it, uh, started it, uh, he died, I think, back in 2016. But um, um, there were many uh, many times that he was a guest on the Ed Sullivan show. So it shows how, how old he was and how long ago he's been around. But, uh, uh, and... Of course, most of you are too young to even remember who Ed Sullivan was. But uh, uh, one day, a a man who worked at the park entered at a cage to make some repairs. And in an adjoining cage, there was a 500-pound Siberian tiger that broke through the wires and pounced on the worker. And the paramedic said the man suffered a fatal bite to his neck and severe injuries to his head, arms, and ribs. They went on to report the curious fact that the man actually was wearing a pistol for protection, and that pistol had been found on the ground next to him. Uh, The investigating sheriff's deputy uh, said that whether he dropped it or the cat knocked it out of his holster, we don't know. Uh, What an irony that that event took place in a place called Savage Kingdom. Well, I don't know about you, but can you imagine anything more terrifying than a Siberian tiger stalking you, watching your every move, waiting to pounce on you and devour you? Can you imagine your physical life being taken away in such a painful, horrible fashion? Uh, Can you imagine anything more frustrating than a cage that couldn't contain such a beast and a weapon that was completely unable to subdue your enemy? Well, the answer to those questions probably ought to be yes. As horrifying, frustrating, terrifying as that scene would have been for any one of us, there's something worse and much more likely to happen to us, to you, to me. Uh, The Bible describes this as a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone to devour may not surprise you who this person is, but it may surprise you to learn that one of the primary methods that he uses to catch his victims. Now, way back in April, you remember back that far? April 2020, when we were not meeting, I started this series in First Peter, And I think one of my first lessons was hope for the hurting. 
And uh, that's kind of the theme that's kind of been going through there. And this whole book is could be called Hope in the Midst of Hard Times. Because you remember, Peter's talking to people that uh, had, in this world, no hope. They were scattered. They were being persecuted. They were treated as aliens and strangers because they had faith in Christ. And it's kind of the beginning of the of per persecution of Christianity under the wicked emperor by the name of Nero. And I think this series of lessons can be very applicable to us because we all face trials and we have faced trials and difficulties. Uh, we'll remember, unless the Lord comes soon, We'll remember the year 2020, won't we? Kind of one of those years that uh, kind of some unusual things have been happening. And it may not just be a virus that we remember. It could be other things as well. Trials, difficulties, things that I think this particular book should help us to deal with. And the, the things here in chapter 5 might be a bit surprising because Peter ends this book talking about, as we said last week, uh, last week, uh, some things, some conduct in the local church, uh, specifically about the roles, relationship between pastors and the people. And we said that one of the principles that comes out of that is a key ingredient in handling trials and handling them well and that is being faithful and active. You know, men and women need to love and fellowship and uh, have a desire for the teaching and encouragement and the accountability of a local church. And that's not just during times of trial, that's all times. But especially during a time of trial. So here in chapter 5, Peter's kind of wrapping up his discussion about the church. In many ways, his discussion of trials. And he teaches us about a characteristic we really need to develop. It's uh, kind of uh, opposite. It's oppo so opposite is so bad, so dangerous, kind of like that roaring lion prowling about seeking whom he might devour. So look at chapter 5, and we're going to kind of take a step back here to verse 5. We saw this last week. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Uh, we spoke about this humility last week, but we need to look at it some more, and especially in relationship to that Peter's talking about avoiding the lion that seeks to devour us. Uh, one of the things that uh, Peter has discussed in concluding this book about trials, he focuses on this issue of pride and humility, and how the adversary that we have, the devil, will try to destroy our lives, try to destroy our testimonies 
and our relationships through this particular area of, uh, of, of uh, temptation. So the first thing we're going to look at is the call to humility. And this is basically the only thing we're going to look at tonight. Uh, and then we'll finish it up, the Lord willing, next week. But the call to humility. Peter issues a very clear call to us in this passage, and I'd like us to think about this, and what does it mean? What does it involve? What is its, what is its scope? So first of all, let's look at what does it mean? The word humility in verse 5 is one of the longer words in the Greek New Testament, and it comes from a root word that means a low position, lowly, undistinguished, of no account. Someone has put it this way, the term does not involve an attitude of self-disparagement or servility, but willingness to assume a lowly position to serve others. It's the opposite of self-exaltation, which is the very essence of sin. Someone else pointed out the very word it is itself fruit of the gospel. No Greek writer employed it before the Christian era, nor apart from the influence of Christian writers after. And we can see why, perhaps. The world views pride as a virtue. Just think about how the world thinks. I'm, I'm proud to do this. I'm proud to be this or that. I'm proud of my, my uh, team or my, I'm proud of my school. The world looks at pride as a virtue. And the idea of valuing humility was pretty much unknown in the biblical world, and it's practically unknown in our world today. And I think the point that Peter is eventually making is that why so many of us find trials difficult uh, to bear is because of pride. So this is the meaning of it. Secondly, what does humility involve? Well, it's important for us to notice here in these verses that humility is both something to do, uh, to, do your, uh, to yourself, and it's also something you allow others to do to you. Say, where is that found? Well, the first half in the first five, verse 5 says, and be clothed with humility. The picture here is a servant putting on an apron or some kind of a garment, maybe gathering up his robe so that he can serve others. In uh, Peter's day, uh, they wore long robes, and if you wanted to serve someone, those robes would get out of, in the way, and so you gather them up and tie them up around your waist so you can serve others. And uh, like this morning, you perhaps uh, looked in your closet, and you selected something in which to clothe yourself. Peter says, look in the closet of personal characteristics and select humility and put that on. Dress up in that characteristic of humility. Uh, many believe, uh, writers believe Peter was thinking of an event from John 13 where Jesus girded himself with a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. I think that could have been on Peter's mind here. Peter's behavior that evening 
would make this statement all the more surprising. But that's from verse 5. But then you look at verse 6, and it's stated in a slightly different way. In verse 6, it says, humble yourself. Kind of a passive verb there. Generally, when a verb is uh, in, a, in a middle voice, it's something you do to yourself. When it's passive, it speaks of something you allow another person to do to you. And so in this passage, you have both aspects. First, in verse 5, you're doing something. You're putting uh, your, a cl some clothes on. You're, putting, uh, you're clothing yourself with humility. In verse 6, you're humbling yourself and someone is doing something to you. Now, some people don't have trouble being humble if they're the ones, uh, they're the ones with the hand on the controls. And when another person is involved saying or doing something they don't like, well, that's a different story, isn't it? It's hard to be humble when someone else is doing something you don't like. Well, we still need to be humble. Peter says both things are involved here. And so that's what humility involves. And then thirdly, what is its scope? How far does it reach? I think another important phrase here in verse 5 is be subject one to another and be clothed in humility. In other words, not only be subject to one another, but clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. Some people are humble as long as they, they're by themselves. But put another person in the mix and pride begins to raise its head. I think we can see this in the nursery sometimes. When the children are playing, if they're playing by themselves, no problem. Put another child in the mix, and our nursery workers can attest to this. Oh, I want that toy that that person has, or, you know. But we just magnify that when it's adults. The issue here is how you relate to other people in your life. And let's stop here for a minute. Just ask the question, why would Peter conclude a book on trials by talking about humility? Well, the answer is humility is the ground in which all of us, all of these other principles that we've studied, uh, that's where they, they have their beginning. Let's test our theory. Go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, we'll think about the relationship between some of the key arguments of the book and humility. In chapter 1, Peter spoke about our great salvation. Peter made it clear that salvation of man is a work of God, not man. Salvation is by grace, not by works. It's a divine initiative, not human strength. It's not human wisdom or human power. And that's why Peter reminds them at the very beginning of this book, at the end of verse 1 and on into verse 2, they were chosen by the foreknowledge of God. And in verse 3, God the Father is the one who caused us to be born again of a living hope. Then in verse 5, it is the power of God that protects our salvation, not our human 
effort. I hope you can see right there, just in thinking about our salvation, how important it is to realize this aspect of humility. We didn't save ourselves. We can't do anything to save us. It has to be God. We emphasize God's work. And when we, we begin to think about God's work in us, it's easier to be humble because you realize we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God made us alive in and through his grace. And so your focus is not on what you did, but what he did. Now, you take it to its next logical place. The rest of chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2 gives us a series of general but very important principles about trials. We talk about trials in relationship to our conduct before God. How does that relate to humility? Well, if you're clothing yourself with humility, trials actually become your friend. When you recognize the sovereignty of God, you recognize that you are, are only one of his children by his grace. He owns you. He purchased you. He purchased you at a great price, and he can do with you and for you what he pleases. Someone said it this way, you can't be humiliated if you're already humble. The other side of this is many times trials reveal a heart of pride that wants life to revolve around me and my goals, my desires. You might want to ask yourself, did your response to maybe some trial that you experienced recently, did it look like humility or did it look like pride? Some trial that came in your life, were you more worried about yourself than you were about what God was trying to teach you through that? Let's move on. In the middle of chapter 2, there's a shift where Peter begins applying these general principles about trials to some specific areas of life, of all which can be applied if our hearts are humble. And we began to talk about our conduct there before men. How do you live with people in your family that sometimes you don't get along with? How do you live with people at work that might rub you the wrong way? How do you work with an unreasonable employer? Now, you'll never handle those things properly if you walk into the situation at work or in your home with a proud heart. You know, saying, well, I deserve this and I deserve that. I'm the most important person around here. Well, that leads to a question. Does your response to trials at work or at home, wherever you might be, reveal a heart that's proud or a heart that's humble? And then chapter 3 moves into the area of marriage. First to the wives who have imperfect husbands and then to husbands with wives who are hard to understand. And there's no way these principles will ever be followed unless we work at clothing ourselves with humility. Now, every one of us chooses what kind of outfit to wear in this particular area. With what do you clothe yourself? 
So we think here we've got to, we've got to consider humility in this area as well. Well, then in chapter 4, and we won't spend too much time of this but because it's so recent that we've talked about it, but we talked about our conduct in suffering. And suffering should cause us to humble ourselves before the Lord as well. And then we came to this information here in chapter 5 in our conduct in the local church. We looked at what pastors are supposed to do, what church members are supposed to do, and what God's word says. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. This is the opposite of the behavior of a man by the name of Diotrephes, who we find in the book of 3 John. It says there, who loveth to have preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Uh, this kind of behavior will ruin a church. And that's why the Old Testament prophet Micah said in Micah 6 and verse 8, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And so that's our, our look at the call for humility. And the Lord willing, we'll finish, we'll end there tonight and finish this up then uh, next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the time that we've had, a short time in the Word. We thank you for these principles of First uh, Peter that uh, kind of culminate in this chapter 5 here with this uh, teaching concerning humility. And really, that's what Peter was trying to get across all the way through this book. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll help us Whenever uh, we're struggling with a trial or something, help us to examine our hearts to see if there's pride that's getting in the way. Help us to humble ourselves uh, before you. And uh, as it says there in First in Peter 5, 6, humble ourselves, therefore under the almighty hand of God, he may exalt us in due time. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your love for us in Jesus' name.